I am Anand Kurma. I am the co-founder and CEO of Wellburst. Wellburst is an e-commerce roll-up for digital-first wellness brands. There are some people who are just not built for the corporate world. And Anand Kurma is one of them. He kept experimenting after graduating from IIT Delhi, building multiple products and startups in the next decade before he found his calling in building an e-commerce company that is focused on improving consumer health. In this episode of the Founder Thesis Podcast, your host Akshay Dath talks to Anand Kurma, the founder of the health e-commerce startup Wellwurst. Wellwurst is a house of brands which are digital native with an online first sales strategy. Today, Wellwurst has 40 plus brands in its kitty and it's achieved this feat with just $3 million in funding. Stay tuned if you want to learn the secret of their amazing growth journey. And don't forget to subscribe to the Founder Thesis podcast on any audio streaming app. So after BTEC, uh, you know, uh, I joined a startup, uh, you know, and... Uh, so uh, the mandate of the startup was not very clear and, uh, you know, it was working on different things, providing uh, web development services, you know, doing some ed tech stuff and things like that. Um, so my heart didn't really lie in that kind of uncertainty. You know, I joined it out of, uh, you know, there's this aura that, that got created in those early days that, you know, startups are cool and all that. So I, I just joined it out of coolness. It was, it was not a very well calculated decision. <laughs> so we were a group of people, you know, trying to do a bunch of different things, trying to figure out how we can generate revenue and things like that. Uh, so I, I did that for, you know, five, six months and I realized that this is not really working and, you know, something uh, systematic has to be thought of. And uh, at this point, I took up a job in a MNC company called Ericent, you know, as a software engineer. So I had software engineering skills and, you know, I thought, let's just monetize it, uh, you know, during the time that we think of what, what needs to be done. Right. And... Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, in in my college years, uh, I had spent third and fourth year working on uh, health tech projects, right? So I, I, I also incidentally happened to do a six-month internship in Massey University in New Zealand uh, in my third year. And uh, we created a lab-on-chip device. It was an electronic uh, uh, innovation for uh, doing, you know, blood cell separation on uh, on a very small chip. So instead of having huge centrifuge that, you know, separate blood cells, you could do it on chip. So back, back in the this day, it was... The, uh, the, the Theranos promise? Like, yeah, yeah. So so it was uh, it was called, uh, back in the day, it was called lab-on-chip devices, mm-hmm. right? So uh, there, there was this huge uh, hope that eventually we'll develop labs that can fit into, you know, a single chip and all that. So we managed to do something that we managed to separate white blood cells from red blood cells on a chip, right? And uh, through a process called dielectrophoresis. And, you know, we were one of the pioneers in that. We also published a research paper. It's a seminal research paper uh, that got published. And, you know, it's, uh, uh, that kind of uh, arrangement that we created on chip is still being used today, right? So, uh, so when I did this six-month stint, you know, which was a very unstructured thing, I thought, you know, uh, I started developing this uh huge gravitation back towards healthcare, that this is something where my heart really lies. And, you know, after uh, joining an MNC and working there for six to nine months, I again went back to the field of health tech and I joined IIT Delhi uh, as a project scientist in a lab that was trying to develop medical devices that were, you know, uh, uh, 
more economical versions of products that have already been created in the US and Europe. So India has a huge problem of not having, uh, you know, at par medical devices and all that. And the major problem is the cost because there are so many features in these devices that are developed for the Western world, not required in India. And th those devices are not uh, being imported just because they are so costly. So we wanted to develop stripped down version of those devices. And that's how I came to be uh, in IIT Delhi, you know, for a year or so. Yeah. Now, which device were you focusing on? So we were developing a device called the plasma, uh, plasma argon coagulator, right? Uh, so it, it uses argon gas to create, a, a, you know, cold temperature plasma that can reduce uh, or eliminate lesions in your gastrointestinal tract. So that was the device that we were working on. Okay. Tell me something. Why couldn't uh, Theranos uh, commercialize uh, or, or build a commercially viable product? Like, like I, and you know, this is just like, I'm slightly diverging from our main topic, but since you're from their background, I'm just curious. So, uh, so there are certain limitations in terms. So, so when it comes to diagnostics, uh, you know, there are certain limitations in terms of cost of testing, time of testing, accuracy of testing, right? So bringing all those together and then implementing them into a system where there are critical time constraints, right? So uh, if the efficacy of test is not, uh, you know, reliable, it's not going to uh, get adopted into the medical system, right? So that's why within the given time constraint and the given efficacy constraint, uh, senior professionals or veterans would want to, you know, defer to reliable methods. And that is why innovation in the medtech fields specifically is slower, right? So there are, you can say, generations of people who have been uh, trusting certain devices and certain methods for, let's say, 20, 30 years. And they're not just going to shift immediately un until the efficacy is proven. So I think it's uh, all about delivering the promised efficacy within the promised time frame and uh, developing that trust around it, yeah. But you, you can't uh, move fast and break things in uh, medtech, basically. No, you, uh, so, so, uh, so, uh, and incidentally, what happened was uh, I got selected into a program uh, in Stanford. Uh, it's for the Stanford Biodesign Fellowship. And uh, I got selected into that program because I, we were, we were developing these medical devices in India. And, you know, there was a collaboration between Stanford and the Indian government to, uh, you know, support health tech innovation and stuff like that. So as a part of that program, you know, you spend part of your time in Stanford and part of time in Indian hospitals. And what we could see that there were so many great innovations that uh, doctors have already developed, but the adoption is very slow because of systemic changes. So for example, let's say there's a batch of medical students who have been trained on certain technologies. When on the first day or the first year of their jobs, they want to prove their worth, right? They don't want to do anything wrong. They don't want to take risks. So they'll rely on methods they have been trained on for for those five, six years of medical training. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, and so, uh, like, uh, what came out of this uh, Stanford Fellowship? Like, uh, any kind of product innovation or what was the focus of it? So, uh, you know, uh, me and my team, we developed a device for preventing, uh, you know, hospital-acquired infections that spread from one patient to the other or from, you know, caregiver to patients or, you know, uh, so spreading any kind of cross-infection within the hospital environment, right? And it was, a, comp a company came out of that entire endeavor. It was called Handshow. And that company got funded by Microsoft Ventures, Johnson & Johnson. So there was a huge promise because infection prevention is a huge thing uh, within uh, within the medical domain, right? Very, very ill understood, but a huge thing because you lo you are losing a lot of lives to secondary infections, not to the primary condition, right? 
and after covid infection prevention has suddenly uh, you know it's now a very very big thing but i think this was 10 years back when we started the company this was 2013 uh, and uh, uh, you know the adoption within the industry and you know we also fell victim to the uh, adoption of the devices uh, within the medical setup so i think we commercially we had access to all the funds uh, you know we had access to all the hospitals commercially we weren't able to make it uh, very successful i would say it was partially implemented in several hospitals like Forte's, Max, and things like that. But commercially, I won't say that uh, it, it it got you know completely sucked into the system. Yeah. So uh, you were like a co-founder here in this company, or or like uh, like what happened here? Like, so I was I was the yeah, yeah so I was the primary founder uh, in this company. And uh, the way it worked is that when when you're part of the Stanford uh, Biden Fellowship, you get exposed to a lot of problems that that need solving, right? And that is the entire purpose of the program. So they systematically train you in Stanford's D-School ideology of coming up with innovation, developing products and things like that. And at the same time, uh, you're getting exposed to, you know, systematic environments where the problems exist and you try to identify them, you know, try to identify the size of the market and then try to solve those problems. So the aim is to create entrepreneurs that then go ahead and try to solve those problems. So that's how, uh, you know, it came about to be. And, uh, you know, uh, I was really excited to be a uh, part of Handshore because, you know, just losing someone or losing your loved one to a secondary infection, which is completely preventable, right? So, yeah. So, uh, like, this was like a funded startup. You raised funds also. And, okay. Uh, so, like, essentially, you're saying the traction was not enough and, and hence you kind of shut it down or, like, what happened? Like? So, uh, what the mistake that we made was we raised... Uh, VC funds early in the life cycle of the company before understanding the growth trajectory of uh, you know adoption of the product. So what okay, happened right. is once How much you, did you run, just, so we just raised uh, around one point five million dollars as seed funds, uh, not a lot. Uh, so what happens when you run uh, or you jump on the VC treadmill is that you have to show growth numbers, right? Otherwise, even if you have a great product that eventually will get acquired or adopted, you know. Um, it's not going to work. So there is a lot of, uh, you know, high degree of, of pressure on you. Yeah. So uh, I think that's the mistake we made that, you know, we shouldn't have raised those uh, early uh, capital, although it sounds fancy, you know, and uh, those were the earlier days of when VC capital was flowing into India and all that stuff. So uh, it was exciting that, you know, we managed to raise funds. We were one of the few companies that raised funds such early in their life cycle, even our product was not fully functional and things like that. So, uh, yeah. Uh, so commercially, the growth, trajectory didn't seem VC fundable at that point of time and you know eventually the product got absorbed into Johnson & Johnson. Commercially what happened was uh, once it was clear that we won't be able to raise subsequent round of capital you know we won't be able to raise a series A because of uh, you know the growth trajectory. So Johnson & Johnson decided to adopt the technology within their system. I'm not sure if they are exactly using it or not some part of it they are but uh, you know yeah so we weren't able to uh, we shouldn't have probably gone the route of, you know, venture capital for that particular company that early in its life cycle. That That's what the learning was. So, uh, J&J uh, bought the IP for it, basically. Yeah, yeah, correct, correct. Yeah. Oh, okay, got it, got it. Okay, so then what? Uh, so, yeah, so then uh, it, it's from that point onward that, you know, something interesting started happening in my personal life also. So, okay. uh so, you know, on a personal or a more philosophical or a spiritual level, I started getting obsessed with the thought of death and the thought that, you know, eventually our consciousness won't exist. 
I think I think this is a thought that comes to every person's mind, especially you know, let's say just before going to sleep, or you know, uh, for me it's highly exaggerated because I feel that thought, or you know, I I get that thought let's say several times a day, right? Uh, so every time something great happens, you know, uh, you feel like you know eventually it's going to go away, and every time something very very bad happens, you you feel like right. it doesn't matter, it's going to go away anyway, right? <laughs> so yeah. so I think. When when that that company was in the process of you know we were in the process of winding up that company, uh, there was a huge part of mine that was obsessed with this thought, and you know I I started doing a lot of uh, research into what people are doing around life extension, health span extension, and whether you know human race will eventually be able to be immortal and things like that. So I discovered that was it that uh, one quick question here uh, was it that, that that failure to build that company kind of like. Really made you re-examine life and uh, made you realize how futile everything is, and made you more philosophical. Like you know, like a lot of people become poets and philosophers after a heartbreak. <laughs> Was it something <laughs> similar? So it's interesting that you mentioned that because. You know, there was a certain degree of high in the lifestyle that we had when we were building that company, right? Uh, we had raised funds. Uh, you know, we were in the US, uh, we were in Europe. Uh, you know, uh, for a few months, we were in Israel for a few months. So uh, I think it was a certain degree of professional high that we had, and th- then we came back to India. The company did work out really well. So obviously, like uh, the thoughts may have been instigated through that failure also. And incidentally, I took a poetry also after that. Although you know, I'd been writing earlier as well. But I just uh, took up poetry systematically, so there was a lot of this philosophical, spiritual change that was happening in me around you know what is the meaning of life and what is the what is the meaning of death per se, right? And and I found it to be a very unfair proposition that we were brought into this world without having agreed to this arrangement that you know your consciousness will be there for a while and then it will cease to exist. So I didn't consent to that. So it's a non-consensual arrangement. Unfair arrangement, right? And this is where I, you know, started doing a lot of research on uh, what people are doing around life extension and especially immortality, whether we'll be able to live perpetually or not. So uh, I found that people are taking, you know, uh, two to three directions, right? So there's one direction where people say human biology, a uh, human biology is capable of living up to 120 years of age. So their aim is to, you know, maximize the health span, so to say, so that you can live up to 120 years of age without having any ailment and in in the vitality that you have as as a youngster, right? So that is one of the approaches. And they say that dying is part of spirituality. So we'll just extend our health span to 120 years of age and we'll die, uh, you know, no harm, no foul. Second approach is where people say uh, uh, human lifespan can be extended within its existing biology. And this is this school of thought of Ray Kurzweil, who is, uh, you know, now the head of technology at Google. Google recently acquired a company called Calico. Not recently, it's been five, six years now. Uh, they acquired a company called Calico that is, uh, you know, specifically working on a biological life extension. And the capability of biology to live perpetually already exists. So we have certain kinds of jellyfish that are immortal. Our cells, uh, uh, like sperm cells and egg cells, they have, you know, uh, perpetual uh, lifespans. So, Within within cell biology, there are mechanisms that allow the cell line to live perpetually. But due to some evolutionary pressures, uh, the gene structure is such that the cell automatically, you know, uh, destroys itself. Or you know, uh, so this is the school of thought that believes that you know we'll eventually become immortal in this biological form unless we are exposed to physical trauma. 
Then there's a third school of thought where, you know, uh, people like, let's say, Elon Musk and, you know, uh, Dimitrescu and people like these come in who say that, you know, we'll be uh, immortal, but that immortality will be digital, right? So our consciousness is, consciousness will eventually be transferred onto a digital medium. That digital mm. medium will be uh, powered perpetually by, let's say, star energy and, you know, protected physically by, uh, you know, certain mechanisms and things like that. So, uh, so I, I found all of this very exciting and, you know, I want to be a part of generation that eventually ends up living perpetually. And I think even both biological and digital immortality, although a lot is being talked about them in, 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 you know, a lot of different circles and people claim that we'll have immortality by 2040, 2050, 2060. I believe that it's going to happen sometime in this century. So my aim is to first to extend, uh, extend my health span so that you are able to live up to 120 years of age because, you know, when you are living, it's not just about living. You also have to have experiences, right? So, uh, so my approach is that, you know, maximize your health span in the next 10 years. You know, you, you develop that lifestyle. You have that financial freedom. And that is why we are creating uh, Wellverse because the aim of Wellverse is to extend or maximize human health span, right? So I'm going to work 10 years on Wellverse till 2030. And then the next project is going to be either biological immortality or, uh, you know, digital immortality working on, uh, you know, one of those things, yeah. Okay. So you started Wellverse immediately after uh, uh, Handshake was uh, getting set up. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The product was called Hand Handshore. Handshore. Sorry. Okay. Handshore. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. So uh, I, uh, it was a long journey. Like uh, it was, it was a nebulous journey, right? So after, uh, um, after you know, Handshore was, uh, we wound that up. I started a brand called Fine Superfood. With zero understanding of starting consumer brands, you know, had no understanding in food tech or food tech supply chain. So, uh, you know, fine superfood was, you can say, a hummus-like product, or if, if, if you can say it was a superfood chutney of sorts, right? So, uh, you you consume it with your Indian food, and all your nutritional deficiencies are taken care of, right? So, it was that kind of product, fairly novel in those days. This was 2014 pre Zomato, pre Swiggy era, where distribution was a major challenge and only way to go about distributing perishable products of 20 day shelf life was to go through retail outlets. So I had zero understanding of food tech. I had zero understanding of creating consumer brands. I had zero understanding of, you know, offline distribution, right? Uh, and what we started This was a week. product which, uh, this was like a refrigerated product. It needed a cold yeah. chain. Yeah, yeah. So, this was a product that I used to consume for myself. Like I told you that, you know, I started dwelling on extending human health span. So I had started radically, you know, changing my own lifestyle. You know, I was totally into anti-aging techniques, breathing techniques, you know, or, or yoga and all that is obvious. And, you know, I, I radically uh, changed what, what, what I used to consume and all that stuff, right? Uh, so, uh, yeah, so... Uh, had zero understanding of how to build this brand and all that, but still we managed to scale it to, you know, 20 lakhs per month kind of a revenue, which is not that, not a lot, but that was first, you know, real. Yeah, what, what was your uh, go-to market then? Like, uh, obviously it could not have been e-commerce, uh, which today probably people would have started with that, but uh, you must have gone through offline stores, uh, which had like a... Oh, so it was, store. Yeah, so it... It was a very Jogado go-to market. So we had a website built on a Wix kind of a platform where the consumer could just, you know, click a button called, uh, you know, order now. And the uh, it was connected to WhatsApp. So uh, the user would be routed to WhatsApp. And then, you know, we had a WhatsApp chat. We had their numbers and all that stuff. So that was the primary way that we started it. But then we started 
uh, targeting corporates where you know we, we used to supply in bulk and it's, it used to be distributed from uh, their canteens right so what happened luckily for us was that I, I i immediately came to know that you know the kind of operational hurdles and the kind of operations that i would get into is not something probably that i would be able to sustain you know uh, you know the, this that, was like that i wanted to work getting manufactured in your kitchen like this was yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. so so, so we, we we had taken up a uh, place uh, eventually you know the volume at which we were using it was not uh, we were not able to manage it through our kitchens or our places right so we had, we we took up a dedicated space for that and uh, all that was happening and i decided yaar yeah, offline distribution to bhai nahi ho payega matlab you know dollars <laughs> 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 so incidentally what happened was there was a brand for satviko which is now a consumer brand hmm. uh, they pivoted to consumer brand back then they had restaurant out- outlets across india to serve satvik food okay. and this product uh, they, this know, is like a franchisee uh, model or like like they they, they were operating the restaurants themselves they were operating the restaurants themselves and their aim was to bring satvik food to modern day consumers and this product fit into their market and you know uh, they acquired it on a revenue sharing basis so they were able to uh, scale the sales to about 2.5x and you know we were getting royalties out of it so i think it happened luckily for me that they were, they acquired the product because uh, you know one it gave me financial freedom you know uh, and it gave me a lot of time to think about what i wanted to do next and uh, you know uh, it uh, after this i joined one mg as a product so manager so this was like a ip licensing like, like you licensed out the ip yeah. to them and they would Correct. continue to pay you a percentage of sales Correct. and they would be like displaying the product on their uh, uh, to customers who walked into their restaurants that correct okay, okay. So this was, I would say, the first you know stint that we had with consumer brands, and yeah. uh, you know, I I I had told myself that I won't do consumer brands, uh, you know, after this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and it it seems very funny in retrospect because now we are building a company that operates a portfolio of consumer brands. <laughs> so so I thought, but consumer brands we करना है, बाकी कुछ भी कर लेंगे, you know, stuff like that. So that's why I gravitated more towards uh, you know within within health tech only. Uh, I gravitated more more towards uh, you know digital products and you know all that products. So manufacturing is a very hard thing to pull off. There are, there are a lot of operational challenges. There are a lot of working capital cycles and things like that. So that is something you know it seems a lot more like uh, you know what traditional businessmen do. So that was the mentality back then. Kya ye ye nahi karna you know. Uh, so uh, I came in touch with Prashant Tandon and you know Gaurav Agarwal of One MG at that point of time and. Uh, they uh, although it was a you know digital pharmacy one uh, mg but they were also working on a doctor patient consultation piece which was very small when i joined their team and you know i thought why not take that up because most of the queries that they received in their early days of that platform were related to wellness and not specifically you know health queries or disease queries you know people are coming to them and saying uh, you know sex sexual wellness issues uh, hair loss and so everything within the wellness a- ambit was there so that was the maximum volume of queries that we were getting so we built out that entire platform uh, you know from very early to when we were doing around i think 1 lakh uh, consultations a day uh, and that 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 was the kind of uh, you know uh, volume that we were able to achieve but it was a combination of free consultations and uh, you know paid consultations the paid consultation uh, percentage was very small uh, 
and several conversations are very small as well where you know the it would it would last only uh, six to seven message exchanges but nevertheless what that gave uh, i worked on that product for 14 months i think and the insight it gave me is the kind of wellness problems or wellness issues people have and you know there was there was a repetitive pattern that you could see around what people are not able to do right and what we were able to understand from that uh, was that you know information one, one, one thing, is, sorry yeah before i come to your learnings uh, from that uh, this consultation was uh, like a face to face consultation or it was like a chat consultation uh, it was digital it, everything it was it, it was on chat it was a chat platform yeah like uh, no not like a video Uh, conference no, no. Uh, so 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 we had started audio back then but uh, yeah. video chat was still not available at, uh, at the point i left the company i think they have added okay. that feature now and, and but they were like they had employed on payroll uh, consultants like the the uh, physicians or whatever subject matter experts uh, who were so this like so it was a blended model where you know we had some physician and some doctors and some nutritionists on payroll and then there were some uh, who were third party who were allocated charts and that were to be resolved within a particular chart mm. and uh, yeah. th- what was the goal there like why were they giving it out for free like that uh, was it like a freemium that you can get a short consultation free and then you pay or was it like it was driving sales of their other products like during the chat like with the nutritionist the nutritionist might recommend a product that they would buy from Tata one MG or one MG? Yeah. Like, what, what was the? See, there? so, so my understanding was when before joining the company, I did you know very deep research into how people buy medicines offline, and typically, you know, old behaviors die hard, and this is what we learned from our first company where we weren't able to scale commercially very well, right? So, I was very wary of not building anything that doesn't support consumer behavior, existing consumer behavior, right? So, the existing consumer behavior can be replicated from offline to online. but it can never be changed completely right so it has to be some function function of existing behavior so when i was doing my research prior to joining 1mg what i what i discovered was a lot of medicine buying happens on suggestive advice right not not specifically prescriptive advice it so there are two classes of medicine buying one is hardcore prescription where the doctor will also tell you where to buy the medicine from because that is the way uh, uh, you know they meet their commercial second is where people uh, go to a chemist and say ye ho raha hai what should i do and the chemist mm. will say buy this right yeah, so right. what i understood was that in india the indian audience is very wary of paying for consultations right they are no, they have no problem even if let's say the drug prescribed to them is a 1000 rupee drug right if you include the cost of consultation within the drug they have no issue with that right so that is the behavior we want to capitalize on and uh, my idea was to uh, you know Uh, keep the chat consultation free and we built an integrated platform where let's say if the doctor starts starts typing a prescription right let's say uh, he is to type that you have to take paracetamol there will be a drop down on the doctor side where he can just uh, you know click paracetamol and the user will then see a buy now box uh, within their chat screen so we built a hyper integrated experience for the user within the chat which is not which is not possible on whatsapp because whatsapp is they will say this this is drug you need to buy they will take it to chemist and all that stuff will happen so it was a hyper integrated experience and that is the way we want to build it you are amazing so essentially that offline pharmacy and pharmacist as an advisor behavior you right. were making it slightly right. uh, like better quality advice but that similar behavior you were translating it to online yeah and more credible and more credible yeah, yeah. 
Right. Got it. Okay. Okay. So what were the learnings from that? Like what, what did you learn when running that product? You were talking about that when I interrupted you. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, fundamental learning was uh, there are two categories of consultations that we saw. One were, you know, hardcore healthcare consultations where a particular a particular person has a disease and, you know, they'll have to go uh, undergo certain procedure, whether it's pharmaceutical or surgical, whatever, right? And then there are uh, other categories of where uh, people have non-critical health issues, but that is impact impacting them, uh, you know, emotionally, right? Let's say they're losing their hair or, you know, uh, their, their skin is deteriorating or, you know, they're gaining weight or, uh, you know, their blood sugar level is not allowing them to consume the food that they want, all that stuff. So what my learning was that, uh, you know, especially being a proponent of health span maximization, I didn't want to go to the disease route, right? So because healthcare is, you know, let's say if there's a zero point, Below the zero point is diseased people. Above the zero point is you have to maximize your potential, right? So I wanted to remain above the zero line and address the wellness issues more rather than the disease issues, right? And within that ambit of wellness issues, what I saw was that there was a lot of suggestions or, you know, a lot of information, but very few ways for people to actually adhere to that advice, right? So just to give you an example, let's say a diabetic person goes to a diabetologist. They say, okay, uh, you know, uh, my sugar level is this and that, whatever the first thing the diabetologist is going to say, stop eating rice, right? Now that is a piece of information that is of zero utility to that person, right? A person who has consumed rice their entire life, telling them stop consuming it, it's not good for you, is, is a no good advice, right? It's not going to help them because now there are two things going to happen. Because of that ingrained behavior, that person is going to eat rice anyways. Earlier, that was just damaging his or her physical health. Now it's also damaging his uh, mental health. Okay, I have done something wrong. Uh, I have done something which doctor told me not to do, right? So this was, uh, I, I think, core learning that I picked up from those kind of consultations that if you want someone to change something, you have to enable that change. You just can't tell them that, you know, you you, you do this, right? Uh, or let's say, uh, wake up every day at 5 a.m. That is that is no good advice. Not, not very useful, right? Uh, things like that. So eventually... When we were uh, tinkering with ideas of how to address wellness in general, our primary aim was to be able to address behavior change, right? And we didn't want to create products where people say, okay, are now uh, quit everything and start eating this, right? So we had to facilitate existing behaviors, right? And diabetes, thyroid, PCOD, uh, you know, obesity, uh, weight gain, these were the issues, uh, you know, uh, the wellness side of these issues uh, were the ones that we were trying to address. And, what uh, is PCOD? Uh, polycystic ovary uh, disorder. Okay. 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 Yeah. So, mm. so what we realized was that most of the people know what's good for them uh, when it comes to you know eating. Everyone knows what what good food is, right? So all this advice going on is just circular recycling of information. Don't eat this, eat that. Don't eat, do this, do that. Everyone knows what's good for them, right? The problem is not knowing what's good for you. It's about how to adhere to that on a long-term sustainable basis, right? And this is when we decided that Velvers has to stand for creating products that enables these behaviors, right? So instead of telling a diabetic patient, quit rice, you have to make rice that they enjoy eating and, you know, uh, it doesn't impact them in a negative way. And that's how Velvers came about to be. And again, uh, unfortunately or unfortunately, in the domain of consumer uh, brands which I uh, you know specifically wanted to stay away from and on top of that 
because we were creating products that were so unique, we had to again get back into manufacturing. Because no manufacturer, no contract manufacturer was, uh, you know, willing to produce the kind of products that we were doing at, at smaller scales, right? And this is when I met my co-founder, Aditya Seth, who was the manufacturing and supply chain expert. And, you know, that's how I, our partnership started here. What's Aditya's background? So Aditya comes from a 10-year experience in supply chain, specifically food products. But he has, you know, very specific experience in getting work done from third-party manufacturers, contract manufacturers, quality assurance, all legal compliances, you know, things like that. So actually getting stuff done on the ground. So once a food technologist and nutritionist have created a composition for a food product, how will it go into manufacturing procedurally so that you can produce it at a cost uh, that allows you to sell it and things like that. And which company was he working in? So he was, uh, uh, he had his family business only, yeah. Okay, okay. It was okay, his okay. family business, yeah. yeah. Like they, they were uh, like like selling like an unbranded kind of a product. Or yeah, they were B2B suppliers of hmm. large scale, you know, food products. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Got it, got it. Okay. So you uh, quit your job and started looking for a co-founder or, or like what's the sequence in which stuff happened? So sequence was... Uh, uh, you know, slightly convoluted that, you know, uh, uh, I I used to do these design thinking workshops. So what, uh, so uh, I, I'll just give you a brief background. So Aditya obviously was working uh, in his family setup and, you know, he was uh, expert at manufacturing QA, but parallelly he was also doing an industrial design degree because he thought that, you know, eventually he'll get into designing specific uh, manufacturing equipment. So he was doing industrial design, right? And when I was, uh, you know, uh, within 12 months, I decided that, you know, I'll take the leap and I'll start a new company. And, you know, there was two, two month period when I was at 1MG, but I was still thinking about what to do. In this period, I was doing design thinking workshops, trying to, you know, train people on the Stanford design school process, you know, what we had learned. So we were just organizing design thinking workshops. And Aditya happened to be at one of those workshops. And, you know, that's how we met. Uh, and he was discussing that, you know, uh, that uh, I'm doing industrial design to uh, create equipments that can manufacture products. And so it seems synergetic and we, you know, we started hanging around and it was still very nebulous. We didn't know that we'll end up doing these, right? In, in fact, the first product that we created was uh, a namkeen replacement, you know. So we thought that, you know, Indians are very fond of namkeen and, you know, you have high calories, high fat, high carbs. So that is something that needs to be replaced. So that is the first product that we created. Uh, but then we gravitated more towards staples because we wanted to be a more center of plate kind of, uh, you know, uh, company than, you know, peripheral products. Yeah. So that's how it happened. Yeah. So uh, what was that Namkeen product? Like, uh, tell me a bit about that. Uh, did you actually launch it or that was just a prototype you made? Oh, it like, was, like, it was, it was, uh, it was just an experimentation. So we, we, I, I think we created 10, 15 products before we, 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 uh, finally centered on doing, you know, staples. And this was the time that, that we also realized that a single brand cannot cater to a lot of people, right? So wellness is like religion, right? Everyone wants to reach God, but everyone has a different ideology of how to reach God. And you cannot enforce one ideology on uh, one or a different set of people, right? So we knew early in our life cycle that if we have to maximize human health span, if we have to maximize wellness, we'll have to end up creating a Unilever kind of a structure where, where, where we have several brands and, you know, they are doing innovative products and they are centered on different wellness ideologies. And that's what we're doing now. Okay. Amazing. 
So, uh, like, tell me about that, uh, you know, that actual launch journey, like, you know, launching the business, the product, the go-to-market. So, uh, you know, as, uh, uh, like, fond proponents of the D-School thinking, we very well knew that we have to experiment and find the product market fit first before we do anything. So, just to give you an example that our company didn't even have a website and we were already doing, I think, 35 lakhs per month kind of a sales. Our primary go-to market was Amazon, right? And we were doing hyper amount of testing uh, in product compositions, in feedbacks. And back then, Amazon used to provide you numbers of customers. So we could speak directly to customers. So all that has been restricted. Now you don't get customers from, uh, you know, Amazon, right? So we just created products, we listed them on Amazon. At one point of time, we had 50 products listed on Amazon. You know, some of them were selling, some of them weren't selling. So that helped us, you know, kind of get large amount of feedback on what's working, what's not working, both from the search perspective, what are people searching for? What are, uh, you know, what are the kind of uh, products people are searching for? And what are the kind of products that people come back to? You know, so there are only two critical parameters to create a brand. One is, whether that product is searched for or not, one. Second, if if a person has bought that product, whether he'll come back or not, right? So, uh, so those were the two things or uh, two pillars that we were, you know, critically trying to understand. And then we narrowed down the product. Which portfolio. in a way could be summarized as like the total addressable market and like the the long, long term, uh, like what is the lifetime value of a customer for Correct. that product or like repeat, repeat behavior. Okay, interesting. Correct. And uh, what were these products? Like, like, give me some examples. And and how did you get them manufactured? These 50 products, you said you had up to 50 SPUs at one point of time. Right, right. So what we had done was we had set up an R&D lab specifically for crafting these food products on a lower scale. And Aditya was the one who was working on it. Uh, these were products like, you know, low carb flours, and, you know, uh, uh, low, uh, snacking products or, you know, oil-free products and things like that. And some some supplements as well. So, uh, initially, everything that we did was under the well-versed umbrella. But slowly, we started, you know, segregating them into different brands. So, all low-carb products became consolidated under keto all uh, vegan products became consolidated under Ovigo, you know, all diabetic products uh, got consolidated under Diamonk and things like that. Okay. And uh, like in those Amazon experiments, is where you realize that you want to focus on staples instead of snacks and all. So yeah, that was, uh, so staples have a high uh, repeat rate, right? And frequent repeat rate. So that's why we stuck to that. And what we thought was that even if we do side of the uh, plate products, they'll be separate brands. So we do have a brand called Unsnack that is dedicated to snacking products, right? It's called Unsnack because snacking is something you do mindlessly. So it's a mind, uh, you know, mi- mindful consumption of products. So we do have that now. And now we are not, uh, so now the way our model works is that we want to become a conglomerate uh, of wellness brands in different categories, not just food, right? So we have functional food and supplements. We have skincare, hair care. We have, you know, fitness equipment. So these are the three, four categories that we are centered on. So the aim of the company has now shifted towards maximizing wellness through these brands in a Unilever style. Okay. So, so like, uh, uh, give me some timelines here. Like when did you launch and run these experiments on Amazon? Then when did you decide that this is going to be our first line that we will focus on and so on? And like, 
were you funding it through savings or were you like did you raise funds or like tell me about that also so we started in 2018 so all the tinkering was ongoing between july 2018 to you know uh, september 2019 september 2019 was when we raised our first angel round of 34 cr right uh, prior to this you know it was being funded through my savings and there was a uh, uh, a person from unilever govind rajan right so he was a unilever guy and he was himself uh, had some lifestyle issues you know he was a diabetic and he was the one who uh, gave us 25 lakhs in a convertible note just to experiment ke bhai dekho kya ho kya ho sakta hai like just just try it out, try things out and all that so he was a you know uh, a strong proponent of the company so we tinkered for one year and you know Uh, that is how we came about the structure that we'll have to build it in this style of you know separate brand and separate products, and we were able to raise a seed round in two thousand nineteen. Yeah, and that seed round was for what setting up manufacturing or spending on marketing, customer acquisition, or like, uh, and did you manufacture in house or like uh, how did you fix supply? Like, uh, what was the way to do supply here? So initially, you know. Uh, a lot of what we did was manufactured completely by us so we set up an extension to our r&d lab we had taken up a dedicated space for manufacturing we had blue collar workers all that was going on right what we learned was that a lot of companies you know that do contract manufacturing let's say take an example of coca cola right coca cola contract manufactures uh, you know all their products right but the entire procedural know how from r&d you know what the composition of the product is to how uh you know procedurally it will get manufactured has to be done by the company and then implemented through a third party right so the third party never does any procedural innovation or production innovation so all that has to be done in house right so what we realized was that all this procedural know how will have to be created in house and that that's why the first manufacturing that we set up was in house only and now that we go to third party we not only transfer or the ip to them to manufacture but also the procedural know how we know which machines they have to use the procedure they have to follow the sop they have to done the quality assurance processes they have to implement so everything has to be given to the third party to implement they are just there uh, you know it's just like a franchisee model for manufacturing got it okay okay and uh, aditya had these contacts with third party manufacturers so it was uh, like otherwise somebody new to the field would have had to really spend a lot of time in convincing them to follow your processes because you were not a known brand right like why would a contract manufacturer really agree to your terms and conditions and and maybe they would have had some minimum order quantity yeah. restrictions and which would have probably made it unviable for you so like like aditya i guess helped solve a lot of those supply issues yeah so i think what uh uh traditionally you know how companies operate is that they will do let's say 9 to 12 months of uh, you know consumer understanding and uh, you know product development and then launch uh, you know one to two products and you know then they'll put all their marketing capital behind that product to scale it at any cost right and that's how uh, you know uh, a lot of that is intuition based and uh, you know experience based and all that so what we realized that we didn't want to follow that approach we wanted to follow because wellness trends especially at this time are changing so fast that you cannot anticipate everything on uh, on the ground right how the needs are evolving uh, you know what the customer really want and all that so we wanted to apply that uh, ideology of be school that you know will fail first fail fast and you know will uh, we'll see what what's actually working on the ground so the way 
our non-traditional lab setup helped us was uh, that we were able to create a large number of products at a lower volume and experiment with them. And, you know, we we could churn out a product in, let's say, two weeks and shut, shut it down in another three weeks. So it was a five-week cycle of knowing this product is not going to work. Wow. Amazing. Okay. Amazing. And, uh, like, how, how did you uh, uh, understand the trends and decide that, okay, let's try this product? So uh, it was a combination of objectivity and subjectivity. So obviously, like we were doing a lot of, uh, you know, we were part of a lot of groups on Facebook, Quora, uh, you know, even WhatsApp groups and all that. So, you know, broad macro trends, you you could get to know from the kind of keywords that were being used. Or, uh, let's say plant-based milk is being used a lot or things like that. So you get to understand a lot of different trends. And then you use those keywords that you have gathered subjectively. And then you do detailed research on, let's say, Amazon Pie, uh, you know, Google Trends and, you know, SEMrush and all that to understand their search volume and what's actually happening uh, from an objective point of view. Uh, what is Amazon Pie? So Amazon Pie is a tool that gives you, you know, access to certain uh, data points. And, uh, you know, so Amazon now gives you uh, a lot access to a lot of data. Uh, like, uh, so like since the last five, six years. It's like years, user yeah. analytics uh, of yeah, Amazon yeah, sort of, customers. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, okay. Which you can... At a broad level, you can uh, access those user analytics. Correct. Okay. Correct. And uh, Amazon charges for this, or they just like you know, as part of the seller account. I think it it gets uh, facilitated to once the account reaches a certain size, that uh, you have mm. access to that. Okay. Interesting. Okay. 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 And so once you figured out that let's say plant based milk is a trend, then then you would uh, go about trying to get some minimum inventory done and then list it and then see if it was selling and then get feedback from the buyers. Uh, how would you get feedback? Because now Amazon doesn't share uh, numbers. So it was based on the ratings or like, how was it? No, so uh, in the initial days, we we did get access to the numbers. So that's how we used to do it. And by the time, so Amazon just stopped this, I think a couple of years ago. By that time, we had our website in place. And, you know, if you go to wellverse.in, all of our brands are listed there. So to the end consumer, it seems like a marketplace of uh, a lot of different brands, right? And, uh, uh, so we, uh, so although uh, the volume of sales that we do through wellverse.in is around 15% of our total uh, sales volume, but that is a decent enough size for us to reach out to consumers and know what the feedback of the products is. Right, right, and right. Your, your the, intelligence comes from this. Like. Yeah, yeah. So, so we don't, uh, so we, uh, within our growth strategy, we never project wellverse.in to become very, very large. Uh, because the CACs uh, are higher for websites and, you know, the kind of delivery, delivery experience Amazon or, you know, uh, if Instamart guys can provide, we cannot provide because we sit on top of third-party logistics players, right? But that for us is a way to understand consumer pulse and consumer insight and structured sensory feedbacks from uh, the users. Okay, okay, okay. Interesting. Uh, and so tell me the, uh, like, you know, once you place that angel round of, that's three, four crores. Uh, then, you know, what was the trajectory after that? What kind of monthly revenue were you seeing? Uh, you said you hit like 30, 35 lakhs. By when did you hit that? And how did that progress? And what is it today? Like the, the journey in terms of your numbers? So I think when we raised a seed, when we raised the seed round, we were around at uh, 40, 45 lakhs per month uh, of revenue. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, I think, uh, after that, COVID had hit in 2020. So this was September 2019 that we raised the funds. And, you know, COVID, we uh, we saw a spike in certain products, but some of our products had been shut down as, you know, non uh, lying within non-essential category for some months. So there was, you know, 
four five months was slightly turbulent uh, and you know we hovered on um, you know 60 70 lakhs per month kind of a revenue and that was ongoing by the time uh, you know i think july 2021 we were at 1 cr per month kind of a revenue and uh, you know from there we have uh, we raised another uh, round from jubilant foodworks it's a public, public limited company that invested in us and from that point onward, we are scaled very fast. We were around, around at, you know, uh, 4.5 CR per month kind of um, uh, revenues. Yeah. Uh, so w- why did Jubilant invest? And uh, I mean, you know, like, um, like uh, when it comes to high risk investment, which is what investing in a startup is, it's typically VCs who invest. Uh, it's not very frequent for a publicly listed company to invest at such an early stage. I mean, they would typically come in once the business has reached a certain scale and they feel that with their distribution muscle, they can scale it up. But what, what was the reason here for Jubilant to invest? So there are uh, two to three different reasons. One is that, you know, we are slightly more stable as compared to other startups. You know, the kind of thing, although we are trying to address new wellness needs, but from a fundamental DNA perspective, what we are doing is a stable business. Right? It's, it's not that it's either win all or lose all. It's not that kind of a market. So essentially, that kind of stability is there that the company is not going to shut mm-hmm. down. Right? Mm-hmm. Second is, and, and you're is focused I'm, on products which have repeat purchase. So, so that right. revenue stability is also there. Right. Okay. Correct. So what we understood fundamentally was, uh, you know, the value that they found in our team was twofold. One is what we understand fundamentally is that no brand can be built without two things, right? So there has to be some degree of innovation within it within its supply chain. So you cannot just pick a product from China and start selling it and build a brand on top of that. That is not possible. Some degree of supply chain innovation happens even with products like Micromax or that are directly being lifted from China. That is a price innovation, right? Uh, and second is that you address a new wellness niche, but with repeat rates intact. So you're not mindlessly trying to scale a brand like a tech company, right? So tech company and consumer brands have to be built differently, right? A consumer brand is like a child and a child takes nine months to uh, get born, right? You can't just uh, force feed it and grow it, right? So I think those are the kind of value they saw in our team. And from a strategic perspective, they are building an entire ecosystem for modern day, uh, you know, consumer brand use cases. And I think that where this energy was it. Okay, amazing. Okay, okay, got it. Yeah, I guess uh, you did not necessarily need to build a very strong brand to generate sales, like yeah, because yeah. I mean, uh, people would anyway be buying unbranded data, for example, or so on, and so that that need to spend a lot on brand was not really there at the initial stages till a certain level, I guess. Yeah. So, uh, what we feel is that product market fit has to happen before the brand market fit uh, has uh, to be worked on, right? So you cannot you cannot build a brand story and expect a non-product market fit product to sell, right? So brand, it's like a, you know, primary school, secondary school, college kind of a structure. So a student has to pass through primary school for it to go through, go to secondary school. So that is, so so we, we see there are, you know, three distinct phases of brand building. In fact, there are five, but I'll just talk about three, right? So the first is product market fit, right? Whether the consumer is searching for what you have listed or not, if, if the search volume is sufficient or not, right? Second, if the user has bought your product, whether they are buying they, they are buying it again or not, right? So the product market fit uh, comprises of these two things, right? The second is 
the product channel fit, whether you are selling it through the right channels and uh, from uh, a PNL perspective, right? So you have to take into account what your CAC is, what your uh, distribution cost is. And if the PNL does not doesn't support it through that channel, you can't sell it. So just to give you an example, let's say you have a 99 rupee product, right? You cannot you cannot sell it through Amazon.in, right? You have to sell it through Amazon Fresh because the kind of distribution uh, margins that you uh, logistics that you pay to Amazon is not going to enable your product to sell, right? So that is the product channel fit. And the third is uh, your uh, uh, you know brand market fit. So what is the broad ideology that is brand? The, the brand is centered on and whether it's going to resonate mm-hmm. in in mm-hmm. in the future as well or not yeah interesting and what are the other two you said there are five uh... so uh, post that then then you have you know you know ma- mass communication channel fit and things like okay. this so so once you cross certain scale you have offline distribution fit mass communication channel fit so these are the two phases yeah okay okay whether you uh, advertise on facebook or you do a tv ad or you do a print yeah, ad correct Okay. Okay. Interesting. So, so it, it goes through a systematic five phases, right? First is product market fit, product channel fit, brand market fit, uh, you know, offline distribution fit, and then mass communication fit. Yeah. Okay. Uh, can you talk to me about your portfolio of brands and for each one, tell me where they are in this life cycle and what is their percentage contribution to your overall top line? So, what has happened is that we have done something very interesting. Uh, uh, so, when uh, I'll have to talk that uh, talk about that before you know I can give you that detail yeah. right that yeah. is more yeah. contextual right mm. so when we were creating all these brands and we see a lot of different wellness niches uh, bubbling up and you know they have to be addressed what we realized was that although the approach is really great that you know you have to create a Unilever style of wellness uh, Unilever style of consumer brands you cannot develop all the products on your own because you know developing a product market fit product and you know uh, fine-tuning it takes time energy bandwidth and all that right so uh, although the innovation has to be there but all, uh, everything cannot be done uh, on our own right so we thought of decentralizing this entire process of product creation and how we did that was we created a program called the Wellwest accelerator what it does is that since we excel at digital distribution, we open our expertise of digital distribution out to all the early stage wellness startups, right? Once you are part of uh, the wellness accelerator, your product will be listed on Amazon, uh, you know, Flipkart, uh, Zepto, Instamart, all these channels through Wellverse, which means your product immediately gets a very, very high visibility and we get access to, you know, what products are working, what are not working, right? So the structure that we have now created is that uh, you know, uh, we accelerate brands in their early life cycle. We understand which brands are working and we eventually acquire some of those brands, right? So the all, all the product market innovation doesn't have to be done by us. Although a lot of support is provided by our team, whether it's, you know, trademark support, you know, supply chain support, uh, R&D innovation, lab testing, whatever. So a lot of that is done by our team as well, right? So we have kind of created a unique decentralized structure of finding product market fit products and then pouring brand capture on top, top of that, right? Uh, so right now, if I talk about major brands, you know, we have, uh, uh, so so we have a, you know, uh, revenue of around 4.5 CR, where, uh, which is contributed by around, uh, you know, four major brands. Yes, 4.5 CR is uh, annual revenue, last uh, year's no, or what? Uh, monthly, monthly revenue. Oh, okay. correct, monthly revenue, amazing. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so four major brands are, one is called Keto5, which was one of our mm-hmm. first brands and, you know, it's a, a low carb. Um, lifestyle product, right? Mm. Then we have uh, yeah, zero this would sugar. Be like, 
an actual one to one true one to one replacement of sugar so you know uh, going back to the ethos of zero behavior change so it doesn't add, have any aftertaste like sugar free it doesn't have any carcinogenics like aspartate or things like that you know uh, so that that's one of the other brands then we and this is sold as, as what as a granules powders pills yeah what? so it's it's granules it's, it's like sugar okay. only yeah. okay mm-hmm. amazing mm-hmm. Yeah, okay and we have a brand called uv shit mm-hmm. which is clean uh you know daily use supplements uh, so let's say it's a um, you know protein alternative to whey it's a you know vegan alternative to omega 3 and things like that so clean uh, alternatives to all daily use supplements and then we are uh, fourth brand is called velcore it's a advanced supplements brand uh, centered on you know energy for athletes energy for high performance uh, you know physical activities and stuff like that so these are the four major brands uh you know i may not be able to comment on the exact distribution percentage distribution yeah <laughs> but that's broadly maybe you can edit that part out as well where i said this how do you find brands slash founders to uh, to accelerate like uh, i mean you know um, you you would uh, need a fair amount of effort on that like uh, i mean vcs typically have a team which is dedicatedly doing that deal sourcing how do you do that like so we have a dedicated team of seven people that is specifically working on this so, so now what's happening is that our you know so 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 let's say earlier we were setting up an entire r&d team uh, you know that had peripheral support for manufacturing as well so now as that manufacturing support team reduces that is being consolidated into the accelerator team right so you have a core r&d team that excels at creating great products uh supported by an accelerator team that identifies great brands so this r&d team provides know how to these accelerated brands of how to create great products on top of the marketing insights that we get for these brands that you know these products are working these are not working so you need to focus on these products right so we have a dedicated seven people team uh you know that is constantly profiling all channels for new brands when i say new brands these are brands who have reached a sales of 3 lakh per month of sorts where you know they have at least done something they are serious about what they are doing you know they are not not just you know uh, uh, listed their product right and this is the uh, so we okay, so, so I, i think that makes it mm-hmm. relatively easy to identify brands because you're looking at listings on various platforms so right. like right. you're able to flag that okay this is a, mm-hmm. a new brand mm-hmm. that is yeah. trending okay got it mm-hmm. so i think we have 10000 uh, brands that are logged in our database as of today well wow. yeah. okay 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 so this is how they identify and then what happens like do you take equity uh, in exchange for the accelerator do you give them funds uh, in addition to the know how and market access or like what is the model there so the model is evolving the initial model was very simple where we opened up our distribution expertise to these brand in exchange for a very small commission that we charge them right and that uh, uh, so that was the model but going forward you know as uh, you know we are setting up a dedicated capital pool for these brands as well so we will consider investing in specific uh, uh, of these brands you know where we will invest early on even at the acceleration stage 
So it's going to become a Y combinator style of a model where, you know, we'll invest in large number of early stage brands, but also provide them uh, operational expertise. So the risk with early stage investment is that uh, the expertise does not exist within a team. Okay? And that is where most of these funds are squandered away because they are not poured towards the, you know, uh, in the right places. So the aim is to be able to eventually facilitate both early stage capital and early stage expertise and help them grow faster and either acquire them at one point of time or make them independent investable entities so that they can grow on their own and own equity in them. Okay, amazing. And so uh, uh, w w how many such uh, brands have you incubated and uh, what are like some of the promising ones uh, in that that you may be thinking of acquiring? So I won't be able to take names, but right now we have around 40 brands that are in the acceleration phase and the mandate for us is that they have to positively impact human wellness. One, second, mm -hmm. the founder pedigree and the seriousness about the, you know, outcome they want to bring in the world. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, then we train them on the ideology of, you know, building uh, brand love, repeat rates and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. And, and uh, like, what what kind of scale have some of these brands seen or like, you know, post joining the accelerator? What, what has been like the success rate or the impact of joining the accelerator? So typically, you know, we are able to scale uh, a brand from 5 lakhs per month kind of a revenue to 35 lakhs per month kind of a revenue in the span of, you know, nine months. Typically, that is wow. what and we have been able to do, uh, do that for 35 to 40% of the brands. And at this stage, you know, either we'll, we'll try to make them ready for, uh, you know, investability where we'll make them or connect them to the right investment partners. Mm. Or this is also our sweet spot to acquire the brand as well. So let's say a brand is doing 40 lakhs per month. We have fair degree mm. of confidence whether we want to acquire it or not. So we'll mm. either make an acquisition offer or help them raise funds and then, you know, uh, take some advisory equity in them. Yeah. Okay. So wouldn't you need a lot of fundraise yourself to really... Uh, fund your acquisitions. So, uh, so since we are, you know, uh, we operate on a hyper uh, financial engineered model, uh, so to say, right? So we have access to large sources of debt, debt capital, uh, you know, uh, that are able to power our uh, acquisitions. And since these are contribution to my, uh, CM2 positive businesses, right? So we are able to power a lot of our activities through debt financing. And we don't want to dilute a lot of the company uh, by equity. So we, we will, we will raise, uh, you know, the next round as well, but it has to be done at the right valuation, uh, at the you know, right dilution, right? So I think a lot of people, especially in, in, in the, in their younger ages, they value, uh, equity capital more than debt capital, whereas it should be the other way around because equity you're diluting unnecessarily, mm -hmm. right? And if mm -hmm. something can be done through intelligent financial engineering, you should do it, uh, via that route, right? So some of the greatest businesses are, uh, have been built totally without equity investments, you know, uh, players like Zo uh, Zoho and all, they have built it completely without investment. So that would have been the aim. Uh, obviously, like we operate in a hyper-competitive market, so equity financing is required when you need to push. And we don't want to power our PNL through equity financing, right? So uh, equity financing should only finance, you know, specific brand building uh, uh, activities and, you know, tech development uh, activities uh, and most of mm -hmm. that, yeah. Okay. Um, help me understand what, what is uh, the kind of financial engineering that you have done here. Um, typically, uh, here's my understanding of how D2C brands would access debt. Uh, I mean, typically it would either be 
bill discounting where uh, let's say if you were to get paid for what you sold after 30 days you can take 95% of that today uh, you know so invoice discounting would be one or they could be something like say uh, revenue based financing where uh, like companies like club and all offer that they'll give you a loan and every month certain part of your revenue goes towards repayment of that loan uh, so so what is the approach that you are using uh, so typically we use two approaches right one is the uh, traditional rbs where uh, you know the growth of a brand can directly be powered through rbf because if it's it's the cm2 positive business and you know what is cm2 uh, positive it, uh, so contribution margin to which is everything you are left with after uh, you know subtracting cogs logistics marketing uh, you know uh, returns and damages and discounts right so if if okay. you're cm to positive business you are able to perpetually grow it through rbf because you have access to that kind of and, capital, uh, right okay rbf is revenue based financing just for distance yeah 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 yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. right so uh, so for for our own brands you know we try to maintain a contribution margin to of around 20% which means they are easily uh, be able to powered by revenue based financing for acquisitions the way our, our acquisition work is that for a 40 to 50 lakhs per month kind of a revenue brand hcm2 has to go to 20% first and then only will acquire it second the payout doesn't happen all at once it's uh, distributed over several months uh, while in the background the supply chain integration is taking place right and all that cm2 margin that you extract from the brand goes into you know repaying the debt and that kind of financial engineering enables you to take money directly to, you know, uh, acquire the brand and you don't have to dilute your company for equity finance. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, how did you figure this out? So I, I, I this say, uh, unique. it's the first time I, I have heard of this and it, it is such an intelligent approach to scaling up. Yeah. So I think it's, it's not unique. So it like it, it happens in, uh, you know, I would say serious businesses and, you know, uh, slightly older businesses all the time. So people are powering a lot of their activities through intelligent debt and you know, that's how they run mm-hmm. things. <laughs> Amazing. I-, I need to talk to more serious business. <laughs> okay. 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 Amazing. So uh, let's talk uh, a bit about the future now. What, uh, as a group, uh, you know, what kind of target do you have? Like say by 2025, what kind of you do want to hit uh, what all channels do you want to be present on how do you see those channels contributing uh, what's the roadmap you know uh, I, I want to do a bit of future gazing so uh, I'll start with the revenue uh, roadmap first right so hmm. uh, our target for financial year 26 which is you know by March 26 we'll, hmm. we should be able to do an ARR annualized revenue run rate of $1 billion. So that is what our North Star metric for the near term is, right? So we have to become a $1 billion company in revenue by March 2026. So, okay, well, one quick question here to understand what is the meaning of $1 billion? What are some other FMCG companies in India that uh, would be more than $1 billion or around that level? Just so that I understand what $1 billion means. So Mensa will also soon become a $1 billion, uh, you know, revenue company, top line okay. revenue. Then, then you have, you know, traditional players like whether it's Imami, Merico, uh, you know, mm. uh, these uh, HULs, uh, you know, Wondelays mm. and uh, things like these. Yeah. So Imami would be doing how many billion dollars? Like? I, I don't have the exact number on me right okay. now, but uh, yeah, yeah, it would be much more. It would be much more than 1 billion. Yeah. Hmm, amazing, amazing. So, uh, tell me about your uh, org, org structure, your headcount, and you know how are you managing the business. 
So right now uh, we are around a one twenty-five people company, and you know we are broadly split into four divisions. Uh, you know, the first and the driving engine of the business is obviously the e-commerce excellence, where we excel at selling across all the e-commerce channels, right? So you can you can call it the distribution, uh, you know, uh, team, right? Then we have a team called brand building, uh, you know, that does everything from designing brand communication, writing content about the products, creating uh, social content, you know, interfacing with celebrities, everything related to if distribution is the skeleton, brand building is the skin, right? Uh, then, then we have a third team, which is the supply chain, you know, everything from research and development, quality assurance, interfacing with contract manufacturers, uh, you know, uh, ensuring that the product reach the consumer in the right uh, format and, you know, all that stuff. And then the fourth team is, uh, uh, you know, it can be clubbed with everything else, but it's mostly around consumer and business insights where you have internal business intelligence and external business intelligence. Extern uh, internal business intelligence is about SKU-wise, day-wise movement of SKUs in certain geographies. So getting that kind of granular insight and external business intelligence is about what's going around the world, how are the trends moving and, you know, things like that. So that, those are the four broad divisions. Yeah. So the internal business intelligence teams helps you do your uh, demand planning, your forecasting and therefore provide, uh, like, uh, provide information to the supply chain that how many SKUs to be produced uh, and what is the product makes and stuff like that. Yeah, so internal is about what's working and why it's working, right? External is about what could potentially work and why mm. could it potentially work. Okay, okay. Um, Give me an example of the why here, like like something that you figured out through the intelligence team. This is why something is working. So we recently, in one of our brands called Velcore, we launched a product which is a pre-workout, right? It's a... Uh, non-stimulant based pre-workout, right? Most of the pre-workout products that uh, they are in the market have caffeine, taurine and all these chemicals that give you a hyper buzz and a hyper kick, but they crash your energy in the long term. So the external BI team would study the overall uh, market of uh, athletic supplements first. They would, you know, segregate it in uh, what the CAGRs are, right? So pre-workouts, intra-workouts, post-workouts, what, you know, how, how are these market moving? And then they will superimpose that on top of social trends where, you know, what are the kind of problems caused by these these products, existing products, right? So caffeine addiction, taurine addiction, stimulant addiction is one big problem that is uh, cropping up within athletes, right? And causing crashes. So these are the kind of broad trends that helps the brand team to then decide, you know, what product potentially could be launched and how the brand would be positioned. So it's not a systematic, it's a very nebulous, uh, uh, you know, it's a nebulous process and it, there's, a, there's no linear path to it, but we are trying to, uh, you know, build structure into it where uh, right now, uh, you know, we have processes where we'll gather this information, condense this information, then do more research, condense this information and all, all that stuff. So trying to bring a structure to this chaos here. Yeah. So did this product work and did you figure out why it worked or it did not work? So uh, it's, it's, this, this, this product is working really well because the sentiment of uh, addiction-free energy, uh, which is what our positioning was, is working oh, well with, yeah, yeah. within the athletic mm -hmm. right? So clean energy has always, you know, is on the rise in the last six to seven years. And this, mm -hmm. this is the sentiment we capitalized the product on here. Yeah. 
And that brings us to the end of this conversation. I want to ask you for a favor now. Did you like listening to the show? I'd love to hear your feedback about it. Do you have your own startup ideas? I'd love to hear them. Do you have questions for any of the guests that you heard about in the show? I'd love to get your questions and pass them on to the guests. Write to me at ad at the podium dot in. That's ad at t h e p o d i u m dot in.